morning, as we continue our journey through the Bible this year, we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus found in Matthew chapter number four. And this, this event takes place immediately after the baptism of Jesus and right before he begins his earthly ministry. The truth that we see in this story through the temptation of Jesus, it, it applies to every one of us this morning because every one of us here are going to be tempted in the same ways that Jesus was tempted and how Jesus overcame the temptation and how Jesus defeated the enemy shows us how we can overcome the temptation in our lives. Now, the Bible tells us that God will not put more temptation on you than you're able to bear, but he will, with the temptation, make a way of escape. Now, that tells us that whenever we are tempted to sin, God always gives us a way out. God always opens a way for us to escape the temptation, to flee the temptation, so that if we, if we sin, we're choosing to sin. We are choosing to succumb to the temptation of the enemy. And so this, this story here shows us how we can have victory over the temptation that we face. So I want us to start reading in Matthew chapter 4. Starting in verse number one, the Bible says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. Now, one of the most important words in those two, two verses right there is the word then. And you're like, then. Why is that so important? Well, I'm going to show you why the word then is so important. Now, the word then in the, the Greek here doesn't mean, and this happened. What it means is that what is happening now is connected to what had just happened in Scripture. Now, of course, we know the, the Bible we have today is the Word of God. Every jot, every tittle, it is God's inspired Word that He gave to man and He's preserved for us today. We know we have the Word of God, that it is God's words, but the, the verses and the chapter breaks are not inspired by God. God didn't write it in chapter verse. He just wrote it in a letter. So the verses and the chapters are broken up by man. People who were translating just went through and said, here's a good point to start. Here's a good place to stop. Here's a good place to, to break it. And so we sometimes look at what happens in one chapter and what happens in another chapter is not being connected. But in the originals, how God gave it to Matthew, it was just Matthew, the whole book. So when he says, then Jesus led into the wilderness, he's talking about, okay, now directly after this event and it's connected to this event. It's not a separate event. It's nothing, it's, it's you know, like we're going to, we're after church, then we're going to go eat. Eating is not connected to church. You know, it's just, it's a separate thing that's happening. And we're going to eat today regardless. So it's not connected in any way. But Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, him being led by the spirit to the wilderness to fast for 40 days and be tempted by the enemy is directly connected to his baptism. Jesus had just been baptized and after he was baptized and he comes out of the water, we all know the story, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and God from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's a pretty spiritual high. 
How many of y'all remember your baptism? I remember mine. Uh, you know, I got saved um, at 18, uh, right, out, right before I graduated high school. But I didn't get baptized until I was probably in my 20s, uh, 23, 24, something like that. We started going to a church and, and really got involved and God really convicted my heart. And I know I need to be baptized. And so I remember at Gospel Light Baptist Church, you know, Scott Dean, he, he baptized me after church. And it was a, it was a great day. Uh, but when I came up out of the water, nobody said nothing. There was no voice from heaven saying, this is Sean, I'm happy with him. I mean, people were happy, people clapped, you know, people were proud of me, but God didn't speak. Now, if you're baptized, and how many of y'all, when you came up out of the water, God spoke? Yeah, that's what I thought. If that happened, you'd be pretty happy, wouldn't you? You'd be like, God spoke to me, everybody heard it, I'm pretty, that's awesome. That's a spiritual high. Jesus is experiencing a spiritual high. And then he has to face the enemy. That's how Satan works. Satan always attacks you when you're on a spiritual high. Spiritual highs are always followed by spiritual lows. His, his baptism is a place of celebration and joy. In, in his baptism at the Jordan River, man, there's, there's vegetation, there's life, there's people there to celebrate with him. And as soon as he's baptized, he is led by God to a time of isolation in a dry, parched, lonely desert. The word wilderness here literally means a solitary, desolate place. It was a, a horrible place to spend any amount of time, let alone 40 days with no food, with no water, with no fellowship. Jesus spent six weeks alone with the devil. Now, I know what Fred's thinking. That's nothing. I've spent 43 years with him. But uh, Jesus had to get you, Sue. Jesus had to spend six weeks alone with the enemy. Now, I can't imagine being in a worse situation than Jesus was in. Look, I don't mind being alone. I've told some of y'all, and I don't, you know, I don't mind y'all knowing. I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert. I didn't used to be. I used to be an extrovert. I'm an introvert now. Um, Say, so what's that mean? I don't like people. Say, but you're a pastor. I know. But I don't like people. Um, I would much rather be alone. Uh, I don't like crowds. Uh, I don't like, you know, busy places like John and Stacy. They're taking their family to, to uh, Disney World this week. That's my nightmare. Being trapped in a hot environment with just thousands of people around. I would, I hate that. You know where I want to be? I want to be on a solitary beach. I would love to be stranded on a deserted island all by myself. I'd be great. Just me and God and the fishies and the dolphin. I'd love it. You know that, that movie Castaway? That's my dream. Just to be alone on an island for years and nobody's bothering me. And I, no, I love y'all. It's just people I don't like. I love you people, but just all people I don't. So, but I like, being, I like being alone. That's why my favorite vacation uh, is when me and April, uh, several years ago, we went to Lido Beach, just us two. It was our second time we went. We went a little later in the year. And I mean, no one was there. 
We had to resort to ourselves. We had to beach to ourselves. It was, it was heaven. Say, but there was nobody there. What'd you do? We just laid on a beach and slept. Perfect. I love that. So we're going back to Florida. I know it's a little busier this time, but I still just, I like being alone. I don't like the heat unless I'm at the beach. I couldn't imagine being in the desert because there's no water there. There's no purpose for all the sand and the heat. You know, it's just why did he do that? You know, if you have sand, you have heat, you got to have water. You got to have ocean and waves and dolphins and stuff. So I don't like the ocean, the, 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 the heat. I like being alone, but I also like to eat. 40 days with no food. That, that's the only part of the deserted island I wouldn't like. I could go to the deserted island if there's like some restaurants there that can feed me. And that's all they do. You know, they leave me alone and let me eat. Uh, I'd be fine with that. But so Jesus, he's, in a, he's, he's alone. He's in a hot, desolate place. He's hungry. And then the enemy attacks him. He is about to begin his earthly ministry. He's about to gather his disciples. He's about to start performing miracles. He is at the beginning of something incredible. And the enemy knows it. And so he does everything he can to try to stop it. That's how the enemy works. Whenever God is trying to do something great in your life, you can count on the fact that Satan is going to try to stop you before you get going. The fact that you go through a time of temptation and struggle doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It doesn't mean that what you believed in wasn't real or that God has abandoned you. Jesus was tempted severely right after a spiritual high and you will be too. He doesn't attack you when you're at your lowest. He doesn't attack you when your faith is weak and you aren't serving God or not wanting to serve God. In fact, if it's been a while since you've been attacked and tempted by Satan is because you're living like you're already on his team so he has no need to attack you. He has no need to bother with you because you're already living your life for yourself so it doesn't matter. Look at verse number three. <clears throat> okay, I lost my place. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. So after Jesus is, is hungry, he's thirsty, he's tired, he's lonely, the tempter comes to attack him. Here's the first thing we got to understand about this verse. Satan is very real. We have a real enemy that is trying to attack you and destroy you and devour you. Too many people who say they believe in God don't believe in, in the existence of Satan. I saw a Pew Research poll this last week that said 72% of people who say they believe in God and say they believe in heaven don't believe in an actual enemy that's attacking us or a hell that people go to. I don't understand how you can do that. How can you believe in a loving heavenly father, an all-powerful creator, and not believe in an enemy that's trying to attack us, that's trying to destroy us? Because, you know, one of the reasons is when, you, when we think of Satan, we typically imagine, you know, a red-horned, pitchfork, tailed, thing, tailed guy 
who's obviously evil. The fact is, Satan isn't obviously evil. If Satan were here and he appeared to us, most of us would think he was an angel. Why? Because the Bible says he's beautiful. Oh, but when he fell, he got his horns. No, he didn't. That's how he gets you. You know, he's not tempting Jesus with pornography. Because that's too obvious. He's tempting Jesus with bread. It's no big deal. What's wrong with bread? Nothing. See, the, Satan is, is sneaky and he's out to get us. He is real. He is powerful. He is a supernatural being that works in the world for evil and destruction. You know, Jesus believed in the enemy. Peter, John, Paul, they all believed in the enemy. Satan is mentioned over 250 times in the New Testament. That's enough times for once every chapter that Satan is mentioned. It's foolish not to believe in the enemy. If you look at the evil of the world, you have to see something at work other than just man being man. The Holocaust was more than just Hitler being upset about art school. It was evil working in the world. Slavery was more than just an economical decision by wealthy people. It was evil working in the world. Pornography is more than just people having an issue with self-control. It is the enemy working evil in the world. The distractions that come up in your life that keep you from church or keep you from walking with God, they're more than just poor scheduling. It's the enemy working in your life. The problems you have in your marriage, the problems you have in your relationships at work or at home, they're more than just difficult personalities clashing. It's the enemy working in the world. There's an enemy whose goal is to kill, to steal, and destroy. Jesus said he prowls around like a lion, looking for a weakness to attack in. Paul tells us we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with spiritual wickedness. And if you don't realize who you are fighting against, you won't know how to fight and win. See, Satan doesn't care if you believe in him or not. In fact, it's better for him if you don't believe in him because that makes you more vulnerable. Look at verse number three again. It says, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God. Now, remember, then, not, not just after this, but connected to the baptism of Jesus, connected to what had just happened, Jesus is led to the wilderness, and he's tempted. What, at his baptism, Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water, and God says, this is my son. What's the first thing the enemy asked Jesus? If you're the son of God. If you're who God says you are. Satan is questioning what God had just said. Satan's go-to tactic is to break the hold of the word of God on you. See, Satan always puts questions where God puts 
periods. That's a tactic he's used at the beginning. Remember in Genesis when he came to Adam and Eve again, he didn't come trying to get them to commit some horrible sin. He just came and said, did God really say that you shouldn't eat that fruit? Is that really, is that really what he meant? He wasn't questioning God's word, but he was questioning whether or not God had Eve's best interest at heart. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says that the sower goes and he's throwing seed. And of course, the seed is the word of God and some of it falls on the wayside. And before it can take root, before it can be effective, the birds come and snatch it away. And he says the birds are the enemy. The seed's the word of God. The bird is the enemy. And that's what Satan does. Satan, Satan not only tries to question the word of God in your life, but he tries to distract you from the word of God before it can take root. He tries to get you distracted from what's really important. And he, he sows doubt in the word of God. There's a, a book that was written by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And say, man, that's a weird title book. C.S. Lewis was kind of a weird dude. I mean, I love him. He's a great theologian, but he was a weird guy. I mean, if you've read any of his books beside the Narnia series, he was weird. Uh, great guy, loved God, kind of strange. But in this Screwtape Letters, it's the story of two demons talking to each other. And they're discussing how they're, how they're you know, attacking people and trying to get people to turn from God, and they're trying to sow doubt. And one of the, the younger demons is talking to an older demon. He goes, I was, I was really working on this guy, and all of a sudden, you know, he, he started looking to God, and he started trying to pray and read his Bible and going to church. And man, he, just, he, he started, even though I was putting pressure on him and I was tempting him and attacking him, he just he turned to God more and more, and I didn't know what to do. And so the older demon says, here's what you do. Instead of throwing more temptation at him, just remind him of how busy his life is. And so that's what he did. He goes, so I, I went back and I, I didn't throw temptation after temptation at him. I didn't try to attack him. I just reminded him about how busy his life was. And when he realized how busy he was, he said, I can't worry about all this other stuff. I've got to focus on life. Say, so what did the enemy do? He distracted him from what was really important and got him away from the word of God. That's Satan's strategy is not to make you just doubt God's word. See, because a lot of us here, I believe if Satan came to most of us and tried to cause us to doubt the word of God, whether it's through a sermon or through a friend or through whatever, someone say, man, do you really believe? I think most of us here would say, yeah, I believe the word of God. There's nothing you can say to make me doubt what God has said, to make me doubt that God loves me and he died for me and he's adopted me as family and that God's promises are true. There's nothing you can do to get me to doubt that. So if he can't make us doubt it, he's just going to distract us from it. Get us so busy with life and other things that we ignore the word of God. Too many believers don't know enough about the word of God for Satan to have anything to steal. Again, that's why he leaves them alone. If you're like, well, I'm never, Satan's never attacked me with trying to get me to doubt the word of God. Maybe you don't read enough or study enough or bother with enough for Satan to even bother with it. He leaves you alone because ignorance serves him best. Again, look at verse number three and four. <coughs> Oops, sorry, I covered the wrong thing there. <coughs> and when the tempter came to him and said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, 
it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So I want to show you in this verse and the other verses following the three temptations that Satan used on Jesus and how he overcame them. And here's the first temptation. Number one, putting God's gifts over God. Worshiping the creation over the creator. Putting what God gives you over the God that gives it to you. Now, there was nothing wrong with Jesus having bread. Again, nowhere in scripture is it said, thou shalt not eat bread at any time. Bread was fine for Jesus to eat. He was hungry, so why not eat? And so bread wasn't forbidden. But having bread at that moment wasn't in God's will for Jesus right then. God was working in Jesus' life, and at that moment, bread wasn't what God wanted him to have. He had been led by the Spirit to fast in the wilderness. The first temptation had nothing to do with anything immoral. It was a good thing, but it wasn't God's plan at that moment. See, Satan is not tempting Jesus with immorality. He's tempting him with something that's a good thing, but not a God thing right now. Satan's primary strategy is to take something good, a job, a marriage, companionship, your children, to take something that is good and God's never forbidden and God's maybe even given you, but to take that thing and make it so important to you that it drives all your decisions. That doesn't matter what God says, I've got to do this for my job. I know I should go to church when God, when the doors are, I know the Bible says not forsaken the assembly of yourselves together. I know, I know I should, but I gotta work overtime so I can get ahead, so I can get more money, so I can take care of my family, so I can provide. There's other, because that's, that's a good thing. Bible says if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel. And look, I know sometimes your ox is in the ditch. I get that. I'm not saying you should never work on Sunday. I know sometimes we have to. Sometimes our ox is in the ditch, that's fine. But when your decision is driven by what you have to get instead of what God wants you to do, that thing has become, you're, you're worshiping the gift over the giver of the gift. I don't want to be single because I'm not happy and God's taking too long, so I'll take matters in my own hands. I have to make money to give my family what they want and God isn't giving it to me, so I'll have to do what I can do to earn what I think we need. How does Jesus respond to this temptation? Again, it's not a wicked thing. It's not an evil thing. Hey, you're hungry? Eat bread. Nothing wrong with that. But God wasn't ready for him to eat bread yet. So how did Jesus respond? He, he quotes Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, this, this verse that Jesus quotes, Israel, they're wandering in the wilderness and they're complaining about what God had given them. They were, he was given a manna, but they didn't want manna. They wanted fish and birds and, and leeks and garlic. And I can't blame them. I mean, look, if I'm eating man all the time, I want me, you know, I'm not vegan. I want some meat. You know, I was watching it. This has nothing to do with anything. I was watching a YouTube video the other day and a guy made carrot bacon. And I thought, he's going to hell. 
Simple as that. Carrot bacon is, is an abomination to God Almighty. You can't have that. So I, I understand I want some meat. But they were, they were complaining to Moses and that God wasn't giving them what they thought they deserved. So Moses steps up and speaks by God. And he says, you don't live by bread alone. You live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. There is something that is more important in our lives than food. There is something that is more important in our lives than a career. There is something that is more important in our lives than your relationship with your wife. There is something that is more important in your life than your children or money or health or anything. Say, what is it? It is fellowship with God the Father. That is the most important thing in our life. The first temptation is to put God's gifts over a relationship with God himself. It's to replace the giver of the gift with the gift that he gives. But let's look at the second temptation. Look at verse number five. Then the devil taketh him into a holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, again, if thou be the son of God, Cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and their hands shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Again, Jesus, he, Satan's trying to cast doubt in Jesus' mind, saying, are you, are you sure you're the Son of God? Are you really the Son of God? But not only that, but now Satan is quoting Scripture. He's quoting Psalms where David said that God would never allow the Messiah to dash his foot on a stone. So Satan, here's the thing, Satan knows the Bible better than you know the Bible. Satan knows the Bible better than anybody knows the Bible because he's had a long time to study it and find, it, find out how he can make us doubt what it says. You know, the enemy knows the word of God and he knows how to use it against you. Just because you find a verse that seems to support your sin doesn't mean you're using it right. We have to take everything in context according to the word of God. People are great at misusing the word of God to benefit or justify their sinful actions and their sinful decisions. I have heard people personally use the word of God to try to justify adultery and divorce. God wants me happy. I'm not happy with her. I'm happy with my girlfriend. So I'm going to leave my wife and go to my girlfriend. Or I'm not happy with him. I'm going to leave my husband and go to my boyfriend. People use the word of God to justify anything that they can. Look, people have used the word of God to justify slavery and racism and bigotry. People try to use the word of God to justify world wars. So just because you can try to justify it in your own mind doesn't mean it's right. That's why I love expository preaching. It uses the text to teach a truth instead of finding a verse to back up your point. And look, I used to do that. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I would some, something that a teenager did would make me mad. Say, why? Because that's what teenagers do. Or something would happen. Yeah, I see you, Kevin. Uh, 
a teenager would do something or, or there'd be some, some sin I wanted to, to really get at. So I would write a sermon about a problem I thought they were having in their life and then I'd try to find a verse to back it up. That's wrong. That's why, and I know preachers that are my friends that they'll get up, they'll read a verse, they'll say, all right, shut your Bible, it's preaching time. That's not preaching. That's, I'm going to get up and yell and tell you my opinion. And if you don't like it, you're not right with God. That's why I love it. We're going to take the verse. We're going to study the verse. We're going to look at the verse in context. We're going to see who was spoken to, what it meant then, what it means for us now. We're going to let the verse teach us the truth of the word of God instead of trying to find a, tr- a verse to back up what I want to say. So look at verse number seven. Say it's a rabbit hole. No, it's not. I, I put it in my notes. Verse number seven. I, I planned this rabbit hole. Verse number seven. Jesus said unto him, it is written again... Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, the word to focus on here is the word tempt. Je- Satan is tempting Jesus to tempt God to prove that he's going to take care of him. If you're really the son of God, if God really cared for you, he wouldn't let you get hurt in this situation. So you should try and see if he keeps you safe. Then you'll know that you really are his beloved son. And Satan says, why do I need God to prove what he's already declared in Scripture? Why would I need God, why would I need to test to see if God is telling the truth? So what's the second temptation? There's a second temptation. Viewing God through your circumstances instead of viewing your circumstances through the word of God. And it's easy to fall prey to this one. When life is going good, we have the the pleasure of God. God is blessing us. Everyone's healthy. Everyone's happy. You know, the, the world's in a great place. And so God is happy with us and God is blessing us. And so we feel like everything's going well. But when things start to go bad, well, God must be mad at me. I must have done something to make God mad. Or we begin to doubt God's existence or God's love for us. You know, Jesus is the beloved son of God. He is completely pleasing to God. He is completely in step with the spirit of God. He is exactly where he is supposed to be, but he isn't being kept from pain. He's in a desert place. He's alone. He's hungry. He's thirsty. Jesus said to those that followed him that the cross that would have to be the center of their lives. And he doesn't mean his cross. He says, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross and follow me. The cross means misunderstanding and betrayal by friends and family. The cross means suffering and sacrifice. Jesus said, their servant is no better than the master. If you're going to follow me, you're going to suffer exactly the same way I suffered. But, but, but if we suffer, then God's not happy with us. Jesus was in perfect fellowship with God his entire human existence, and he suffered. He went through pain. He went through betrayal. He went through difficulty. When Jesus said, follow me, he wasn't asking us to follow him through a leisurely walk to a beautiful meadow. He said, take up your cross and follow me. And when we do that, when we take up our cross 
and follow Jesus, the Spirit of God will take you to some desert places. When that happens, when you're suffering, when you're alone, how will you interpret God's Word? Will you view God's Word through your painful circumstances and since I'm suffering, since I'm rejected, since I'm hurting, God's word's not true because God said he loved me and God said he would protect me and God said he wants me happy and I'm not happy, so God's word is wrong. Or will you view your circumstances through his word? See, we have something better than the Old Testament prophets had. They had the promise of God's word in the prophets. We have the demonstration of God's love on the cross. You know, John Owen says that the greatest insult to God is to doubt his love after he showed it to us on the cross. The second temptation is to view God through your circumstances instead of viewing God through his word. Let's look at the third temptation. Look at verse number eight. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he saith unto them, All things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Notice he stopped questioning whether he's the Son of God or not. He's not saying, If you're the Son of God, you know, worship me. He's saying, Hey, I'll give you all this if you just worship me. Look what Jesus says in verse 10. Then Jesus saith unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So what's this third temptation? Number three, pursuing God in the wrong way. This is a powerful temptation. Not just for us, but for Jesus. Why? Jesus came... For all the kingdoms of the world. Satan is showing him and saying, hey, here's what you came for. You can have it and not go through the pain of the crucifixion. Not go through the rejection that you're going to face on the cross. Not Escape the pain, escape the agony, escape the rejection. You can take a shortcut to the will of God. And that's the temptation he gives all of us. It's what God had promised to Jesus. So Satan is offering him a chance to have what God wants him to have, but through a shortcut. He could have, he could have what he had, what he came for without the pain of the cross. He could walk parallel to the will of God and not be in the will of God. This is a temptation to compromise. God you have God, 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 you have something that you want to give me that you've promised me that I know I'm going to get. Lord, you've, you've, you've promised me something or you've laid something in my heart. And Lord, I know this is what you want me to do, but it's taking too long. It's not going the way I want it to go. So I'm going to get what I think you want me to have or what I know you want me to have, but I'm going to get it in a different way. It's a temptation to sacrifice your integrity your family to get the income that we think we deserve. It's a temptation to find your joy and your pleasure with someone other than your spouse 
because you deserve happiness. This temptation, it begins when you get frustrated with your life and you think the issue is the circumstances you are in. The person you're married to. The amount of money that you make and you think, if I could, if I could get this other thing, then I would be happy. I would be fulfilled. I would accomplish what God wants me to in this different way. See, Jesus wanted fellowship with the Father more than anything. Jesus wanted fellowship with the Father more than he wanted to achieve his goals. And because of that, he could resist Satan. See, at the end of everything, at the end of everything that's going to happen, at the end of time, Jesus is going to get all the kingdoms of the earth. But only because he pursued fellowship with God over everything else. Look how the story ends in verse number 11. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Satan gives up and he leaves, and God sends angels to minister. What does that mean? He sent angels to take care of Jesus' needs. What did he do? He fed him. He gave him water. He gave him rest. He gave him everything Satan said he would give him, but he got it through the will of God. These temptations are the core strategy of the enemy in every single one of our lives. They are what we face when we battle the enemy. So I want to show you why the way that Jesus overcame them gives us the ability to overcome them too. Now, of course, when people study this, one of the first things we notice is Jesus, when Satan attacked him, he quoted scripture back. Even when Satan quoted scripture, Jesus quotes scripture back. And that's important. But most of us think that that's the key. When Satan attacks, quote scripture and you're good. And look, memorizing scripture is important. I'm not saying don't memorize scripture. We need, we are commanded to memorize scripture. We need to memorize scripture so that when we're attacked or when we're, we're down, we can remember the promises of God and remember what God says to us. And so we need to know the truth to combat the lies. But what I'm saying is that there is more to it than just knowing scripture. Jesus is more than just our model. He is showing us how to overcome temptation. And there is something specific about the word of God that he uses each time. He is doing something or demonstrating something more powerful than just the word of God and Satan can't fight it. So remember, before Satan tempts Jesus, he says, if you're the son of God, he is questioning Jesus's position with God. And everything Jesus quotes it goes back to the security that he possesses and who God says he is. So, so how, did, how did Jesus overcome this temptation? He, un, he knew who he was in God and Satan couldn't shake him from that. How you overcome temptation? Know who you, you know who you are in God? You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're redeemed. You're adopted into the family of God. You are joint 
heirs with Jesus Christ. You are promised to rule and reign with God for all of eternity. You are promised security and love and there's nothing that can take that away. So that when Satan tempts you and says, hey, come do this thing, it'll, it'll get you joy and pleasure. You can say, no, I know who I am with God. I am redeemed and I am promised pleasure forevermore if I stay in fellowship with him. So that's what I'm gonna do. Knowing who you are in God is the most powerful tool we have against the enemy. That's why so many people fall, because they, they don't really know that. You know it theologically. You know what the Bible says, but you don't believe it. Why? Because the enemy tells you you're not worthy. That's what, that's what Satan is doing to Jesus. That's what he's going to do to you. And look, I firmly believe when the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, he's not in heaven telling God how bad you are. You know why? Number one, he's not allowed in heaven because sin can't be in God's presence. Number two, God knows how bad you are. And God don't care because you're redeemed. Satan comes to us and says, you really think God could love somebody like you with your past? How you treated your kids? You think God loves you when you treat your kids like that? You really think God's going to forgive you for this sin? You've, you've committed it a hundred thousand times and you've asked forgiveness. You really think God's going to forgive you for that? You really think God could, would die for someone like you? And he tells us that and we believe it. I guess he's right. I mean, I have committed this sin over and over and over and over and over again and I'd get, I'd get tired of it. So I guess God doesn't forgive me. But when the enemy tempts us that away and says, you really think God would forgive? Yeah, I do think God's going to forgive me no matter how many times I've done it because God said that if I confess it, he's faithful and just to forgive me. That there's nothing I can do to remove salvation from me or to take me out of the, the, the fellowship with God because Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay for my sins and was buried and rose again to redeem me with God the Father knowing how horrible I am, but he loved me anyway. And there's nothing, neither height nor depth nor any other creature can separate me from the, word, from the love of God. You know when Paul says that, that neither angels nor demons nor principalities nor nothing, nor any other, when he says nothing can separate you from the love of God, you know who that includes? You. You can't do anything so bad that God's going to stop loving you. That's not a challenge, all right? Don't go try it. Say, well, preacher said there's nothing I can do. I'm going to go burn down the whole city. No, don't do that. Because if, you're really in, if you really love God, then you're not going to want to do that. But there's nothing you can do to make God stop loving you. And if you know that, really know that, when Satan tempts you, you can say, I don't need all those things you're promising me because I've got so much more in my relationship with God. Knowing who you are helps you overcome the enemy. You know, every one of us we're going to face temptation as we walk with God. Now, your specific temptation is going to look different than my specific temptation. And it's going to look different than Jesus's specific temptation. Look, I have been tempted to eat bread a lot. I always fall to that temptation. I love bread. You know, we go to Olive Garden, those soup salad and breadsticks. Oh, those breadsticks are so good. 
They just melt in your mouth, especially you get Zupa soup. And I'm sorry, I'm hungry. Oh, we got to go to lunch anyway. But we're all, your temptation is going to look different than my temptation. It's going to look different than Jesus' temptation. The specific temptation is going to look different. But the core temptation is the same. He's going to tempt you to put God's gifts over the presence of God. He's going to tempt you to view God through your circumstances instead of viewing the word of God in, in your circumstances, instead of viewing the word of God the way, and pursuing God. In the, <clears throat> he's going to tempt you to view your circumstance, to view the word of God through your circumstances instead of viewing your circumstances through the word of God. And he's going to tempt you to pursue God in the wrong way. How do I overcome it? Know the word of God. You got to know the word of God. But more than that, know who you are in Christ. Know who you are in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.